Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the Captain's Log Sermons. You'll be hearing Nathan preach not only at Liberty Grace Church, but also at surrounding churches. We hope that this is an encouragement to you and that you're blessed. Well, hey, everyone. It's great to be with you uh, this afternoon. This is not exactly the way that I thought that I would be with you today, uh, but I'm still glad to be able to be here in some capacity uh, and speak to you from the Word of God. And I want to just start with saying uh, to all of you, Merry Christmas. I, I hope that you all had a fantastic weekend, a great Christmas. We're able to, to maybe go see family uh, and just spend some time celebrating the birth of our Savior. So whether you're able to make it here in person or you're watching online now or later, Merry, Merry Christmas. Um, you know, over the past four weeks, as we've been uh, coming up to Christmas, we've been working through this season uh, of Advent as a church. And we've been looking at different promises throughout the Old Testament, all the while anticipating this celebration of the birth of Christ. And now we've come to the, the time that we've been anticipating. Every, everything over the past couple weeks has been leading up to this celebrating the moment that our Savior was born. And we actually started this celebration together uh, just the other night on Christmas Eve, and now we're actually continuing that same celebration together. And on a day like today, as, as we're reflecting on the birth of Christ and, and all that he's done for us, uh, I can't think of any more fitting place to be than, than right here uh, with, with all of you looking at God's word. It just seems so, so fitting as we're celebrating this great gift together, thinking of everything that Christ has done and actually continuing to anticipate with one another the day that Christ is going to come again. Even though we're done with the season of Advent for this year, as followers of Christ, we're all still living in a season of anticipation, anticipating Christ's second coming, the, the day that he will come in and put everything right that has been broken by sin in the world. And over the past month, as we've looked at these different promises of Christ in the Old Testament, we have seen so many different descriptions of the, the type of person he would be and, and what he would come to do. And I just want to remind you, as we get started, of a bit of what we've seen up to this point together. You know, we started in Genesis chapter 3, and, and there we saw the very first promise of Christ that God promised that through the seed of the woman, the head of the serpent would be crushed, even though the serpent would strike the heel of this offspring of the woman. Uh, in Isaiah 42, we saw this promise of the servant of the Lord, who would be gentle and yet would come to bring justice to all of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 53, we saw the promise of the suffering servant who would come to be crushed for our iniquities. In the book of Micah, just last week, we saw the promise of a great king who would be born in Bethlehem and come to set the world right. With so many amazing promises throughout the Old Testament. And uh, even on Christmas Eve, just the other night, uh, as we looked at Luke chapter 2, Daryl walked us through such an amazing description of what Jesus is like that's found in that passage, that he is Savior, he is Christ, and he is Lord. We have seen so many amazing things about Christ already, so many things that are worth celebrating at Christmas. 
And now today, as we're continuing that celebration, we're actually going to be spending a little more time in Luke chapter 2. But as we look back into this chapter, I want us to focus on a, a bit of a different section than we looked at the other night. I want us to look at the moment that Christ is actually born in verses 1 to 7. This is the moment that we see this, this one who's come to fulfill every promise that we've looked at so far. This is the moment that he finally arrives on earth. You'd think this would be, more than anything else, such a moment of triumph and celebration. And yet you look at these seven verses and, and there's something really shocking about it. You, you may have picked up on it as we read through it earlier. I think the most shocking thing as we read through the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2 is how understated it all is. Like I want you to think again of the past couple of weeks, all the promises in the Old Testament that point us to Christ. They are so amazing. And we haven't even looked at a fraction of the promises that there are, but they were all at the core of the hopes of the Jewish people. Every single one of these promises, they would have known and they would have hung their hopes on every single one of them. And so you would expect this moment where Jesus is actually born into the world to be such an amazing one, accompanied with all sorts of fanfare, all sorts of celebration. I mean, in a way, it was but not quite in the way that we expected. I want you to look at how little detail we actually have here in this passage. Look at how verse 7 describes the birth of our Savior. It says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. That's it. That's the description that we have of Christ's birth. One commentator writes that with the simplicity that is often the mark of his literary genius, Luke tells the story of Jesus' humble birth in a single sentence. It's such an amazing moment, and yet it's so understated. And this isn't something that's necessarily unique to just the book of Luke. Like, if you look at the books of Mark and John, they don't even talk about the birth of Christ. They skip right over that part of the story and pick up as Jesus is beginning his public ministry when he's about 30 years old. In the book of Matthew, it's the only other one of the Gospels that really spends much time talking about the actual birth of Christ. And yet, he doesn't actually give a lot more detail than Luke Actually, if you can believe it, he gives less detail than Luke does about this moment. This is what Matthew chapter 1, verses 25 says. It says, He took his wife, talking about Joseph, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so even there, Matthew kind of skips over Jesus' actual birth to talk about what happened after he was born, that Joseph did not know his wife until after the baby was born. There's so little description of the actual moment that Jesus was born. And and we look at that, we have to ask why. This should be such a powerful moment of triumph, yet all we have is one sentence. And yet as we look at that understated story, I don't think that that was an accident. 
Now, I actually think that Luke is very intentional with how he goes about telling this story, the details that he chooses to include. And I think that as we, as we look at how understated the story of Christ's birth is, there's two different things that we can learn from that. And the first one is this, that in Christ's coming, it was a direct contrast to the powerful rulers of that day. We learn that Christ's coming was in direct contrast to the powerful rulers of that day. If you look at these seven verses, there is such a contrast between two powerful and significant individuals. The first one is introduced right at the beginning of the passage, and that is Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And the second one, the second significant individual in this passage, isn't mentioned until verse 7, and that's Jesus himself. And if you look at this story, it is the story of the birth of Christ, and yet it almost seems like he's a side character in his own story. Like this is a subplot. You know, it's as if the birth of Christ is just a, a small footnote in a larger story that's going on. Like, look at how the, the story is introduced in verses 1 to 3. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. This is the story that actually gets a lot more focus, a lot more airtime in this passage. This story of Caesar declaring a census of all the world. And when it uses the phrase all the world there, what it's really referring to is just the Roman Empire rather than the entire globe. Uh, And yet the exaggeration there, it's very intentional. Caesar is introduced here as this massively powerful figure. Essentially, Luke is introducing him as the ruler of the entire world. And for a lot of people in that day, that's how they would have thought of him. Like the Roman Empire was the biggest global power in existence at that time, and Caesar was the ruler of it. Essentially, for most people, Caesar would have been the ruler of the entire known world. And just to give you a little more uh, historical background on Caesar Augustus himself, he, he was the emperor of Rome, and over time, he came to believe that he was the son of a god. And he actually began to believe that he, because of that, he was a god himself. And that's how he presented himself to people, as this divine ruler who, who should be worshipped throughout the entire Roman Empire. Again, the strongest world power in existence at that time. So you have this, this great, this powerful emperor, this ruler of the world who thinks he's a god, exercising his, his power to call a census of the entire world. That's how this passage starts. And yet you look down to verse 7 again at the description of the second significant figure, Christ, as he, is, as he is born. And this is what it says, And she gave birth to a firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. When you think about Caesar and Christ in this passage, the contrast could not be greater 
Like on, on the one hand, you have a powerful divine ruler, ruler of the world. And on the other hand, you have a small, seemingly insignificant child born in a stable and laid in a manger because there was no room for him anywhere else. And I think what's so funny about about that contrast is that Jesus is not given the same level of status or, or power as Caesar in the way that he's described. And yet Jesus is a greater ruler, a greater king than Caesar ever could have hoped to be. I mean, Caesar was delusional. He believed that he was the son of a God and deserved to be worshipped. And yet Jesus actually is the son of God, the son of the one true God and the only one who is deserving of our worship. And while Caesar is showing his power through this census of the entire known world, Christ's birth is being declared to the shepherds in the fields by the heavenly host. When Jesus came, he did not come to be a ruler like Caesar was. He certainly didn't appear that way. He came to be a ruler who is so much greater than that. And that contrast is so striking. Like, come on, this is Jesus. This is the true king of the world. Every single Old Testament prophecy that we've looked at has told us that. Jesus is the king who'd been promised throughout all of history, who would give up his life for us. Jesus is the one who would bring justice to the entire world. Jesus is the seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the son of God who is God himself and yet was born in such a humble, unassuming way. And yet through his humble birth in the stable, we see such a clear picture of the kind of life that Jesus would live and the ministry that he would go on to have. I want you to remember back to a couple of weeks ago when we looked at these words from Isaiah chapter 53 that said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. That's the way that Jesus was born. And that's also the way that he lived. He is our great Christ and Savior and Lord. And yet he lived his entire life as a simple son of a carpenter, a teacher who went about healing people and proclaiming the kingdom of God, and who ultimately would humble himself to the point of death on a cross in our place. There's no greater humility than that. And again, it's such a contrast between the glory that Christ deserves, that Caesar tried to take for himself, and the level to which Christ humbled himself on our behalf. He deserved to have all of the riches, all of the power, all of the worship that Caesar commanded and demanded for himself, and so much more than that. And yet he chose 
to come as an infant, born in a stable, so humble that there wasn't even room for him to be born in a proper room in an inn. He was essentially born in a barn, laid in a feed trough. Even in the way that Christ's birth is first announced to the shepherds, the lowest of the low in society, we see a picture of the ministry that we would have, that he would have. And really it's the second thing that we see in this passage, that through Christ's birth, we see a picture of the ministry that he would have. Jesus always took the time to care for the lost, for, for the outcasts, for the sinners that no one else wanted anything to do with. Because Jesus wasn't interested in what he deserved or, or coming to display the kind of power or, or status that he rightfully should have had as the son of the one true God. No, Jesus came for a reason. He came to be a humble servant who would lay down his life for our sins. I mean, you think about that. Doesn't that just make you want to worship Jesus? That he could have had everything. He deserved everything. And yet he chose to be nothing for us. Humility defined Jesus' birth, and it defined his ministry on earth. He wasn't concerned about status or or wealth or power. He came to humble himself and show the love of God to those around him. I mean, even think of the example of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13. It was such an act of humility to lower himself to the place of truly the lowest, most despised servant. And as he did it, he instructed his disciples to follow the example that he was giving them. To show that same kind of self-sacrificing, humble love that he had shown to them. And the same is true for us. We're called to follow Jesus' example of humility not to be concerned about what we want or what we think we deserve, but to be willing to humble ourselves to show the love of Christ to those around us because that is the same kind of love that he's shown to us. Again, doesn't that just make you want to worship him? As we end off today, this end off this Advent series, end off the Christmas season, uh, get ready for the new year. I just want to take a moment uh, as we're looking at this understated story of the birth of our King and look at something that we see about God throughout this passage. And it, really, it's something that we see about God throughout all of Scripture. Some of you may remember, if you were here last year, uh, right around the time that Elaine and I started at the church, actually, we were going through a series as a church through the book of Esther. And our, our title, kind of our tagline for that series was Hidden God, Messy World. And the idea there was that even though God's never actually mentioned throughout the entire book of Esther, he was still present and he was still at work in the background of everything that happened in that book, protecting his people and sovereignly bringing about his purposes throughout the story of Esther. 
And I think we see something kind of similar here. Uh, I want you to look at the details that Luke gives us, all of the different people, all of the different situations, the, the different moving parts that are involved here as Luke is telling us the story of the birth of Christ. And you start in, in verses 1 to 3 with Caesar calling this census of the entire known world. And then in verses 4 and 5, you have Mary and Joseph responding to that census. It says, And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And all of this, all of this detail leads up to Christ. Think of everything that happened, how events, how timing worked out perfectly for things to be exactly the way they needed to be for the birth of Christ. That his earthly, earthly father was in the line of David. That he was born in Bethlehem, just like the book of Micah said. And that's just in this story alone. I mean, think back to Genesis chapter 3 where we saw the very first promise of Christ given immediately after Adam and Eve first sinned. And think of everything that happened. That's nearly 4,000 years of history perfectly leading up to this moment when Jesus, this humble ruler, would be born in the stable. God was at work throughout all of history, through everything that has ever happened to bring about his purposes through Christ. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything that we've been looking at over the past month. Through his death, he is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus is the gentle servant who will bring peace to all of the earth. Jesus is the suffering servant who's crushed for our iniquities. Jesus is the humble king born in Bethlehem come to set the world right. Jesus is Christ and Savior and Lord. Have you ever sat back just to appreciate how this larger story of the Bible all fits together? I know around this time uh, last year, we had a, a challenge as a church to read through the entire Bible. And uh, I forget if it was either a month or, or 40 days. Either way, that's quite an undertaking. Like the, the Bible is not a short book. I think one of the advantages of doing it that way, of reading the Bible in such a concentrated period of time, is that it really helps you to appreciate more of this bigger picture of how God worked over so many years in the lives of so many people to perfectly bring about his plan of salvation through Christ. And I think one of the attributes of God that is so clearly on display here is his sovereignty. And the way that he is always at work to bring about his purposes. No matter what happens, he is always in control. And along with that, we see so much of his faithfulness in remaining true to the promises that he made. I'm, I'm sure that there would have been days where the Jews wondered if God had left them. 
Sure, there were days where they wondered how God could possibly be at work in the situations that they were facing. How could God be present if this is what's going on? I even think of Caesar calling the census, which would have meant a huge hassle for the people. Inevitably, it would have meant more taxes that they couldn't afford. I'm sure they were wondering how long God was going to let things go on the way that they were. How long was it going to take for God to save them? And yet, even in that census, God was at work to bring about his plan of sending his son into the world. Do you ever have days like that where you just don't know where God is? You don't know how he could possibly be at work in your life. In everything that's going on, how could God be working in this? Well, if you have days like that, remember these two things, that God is sovereign over all of creation, and he is faithful to his promises. And that doesn't mean necessarily that things are always going to look the way that you want them to. And it doesn't mean that he's going to work in the way that you think he will. I mean, talk about things not going the way that you expect them to. This is not how I expected to be preaching to you. you know, staying inside and, and, and quarantining, self-isolating, this is not how I had planned to spend my Christmas weekend. And sometimes you may not even see that God is working until you have a chance to look back from further down the road. But no matter what you're facing, look at a passage like this and remember that God is sovereign and God is faithful. That has always been true and that will always be true no matter what you're facing. And it's through that, that sovereignty, that faithfulness of God that he sent his son, a humble ruler born in a stable to lay down his life for us. I mean, if that's not something we're celebrating at Christmas, I, I don't know what is. God, thank you that you are sovereign and that you are faithful to your promises, that God, from the very first moment that Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, you were at work to send your son in Luke chapter 2 to humbly be born in a stable, to be laid in a manger, and later be put to death on a cross for our sins. God, I pray that you would help us to, to follow the example that your son has set through his birth and through his life to, to show that kind of humble, self-sacrificing love to those around us, to not be uh, concerned with what we think we deserve, but Lord, to be willing to, to humble ourselves to show your love to those around us. And that God, no matter what happens, even as the, the pandemic is continuing to, uh, to, to be unexpected and cause unexpected things to happen in our lives, help us to trust that you are sovereign and you are faithful. That God, you are in control and you have promised to care for us no matter what. And we thank you so much, Lord, that because of you, we have a reason to celebrate. We love you and we praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, thanks so much for tuning in today. We hope that this is an encouragement to you. As always, if you want to know more about us and our ministry, feel free to follow us on Facebook or Instagram or go to our website. Thanks so much and see you next time.